0: We're going to finish off this chapter today, 1 Samuel 22, beginning at verse 20. Now one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be safe. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that as we dig into it that your spirit would be our teacher, uh, granting us the ability to grow more and more into that upward call that you have given to us in Christ Jesus. May the comfort of the Holy Spirit uh, be the comfort of each one here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. may be seated. J.I. Packer once said, There are two sorts of sick consciences. Those that are not aware enough of sin... And those that are not aware enough of pardon you've probably all known people who can sin with a high hand and it just doesn't seem to bother their conscience at all they continue on in their rebellion and they are happy as a lark on the other hand you've probably known people who have overly sensitive consciences and uh, they just cannot seem to get past something that they've done in the past or maybe a lot of things that they've done in the past And maybe you're one of those people who has done something really, really bad uh, in the past and you just cringe every time you think about it. uh, You cringe. It's just so embarrassing. Regrets can sometimes gnaw at you and they can just grind at you for a long, long time. Just when you think that you've put it back into the far recesses of your memory, hopefully to dissipate and to disappear, something reminds you of it. And like a monster, it rises out of the swampy waters and you're stressed out all over again. Uh, You have a hard time moving on. And I believe that the Apostle Paul, probably early in his Christian life, was this way. I mean, think about it. He had murdered so many Christians. He had put so many Christians into jail. And every time he would think about his past, uh, he would probably cringe over it. Peter maybe was tempted to do the same thing cringing over his denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if that's true of you for something or maybe several things from the past, this is really a great, great passage to consider. Abiathar had a family history that was absolutely shameful, in the highest degree shameful. His great-grandfather was uh, one of the three sons of Eli who... Uh, they routinely slept with the women in the in the uh, uh, temple who came there. They robbed people who came to worship. Uh, they were just a stench in the nostrils of Israel, certainly were a stench in the nostrils of God. And so the reputation of his family was not that great. David, on the other hand, uh, he has some regrets as well. He feels the weight of having done something that resulted in the death of an entire city including 85 priests and the the relatives of Abiathar and so here comes Abiathar to talk to him and he just cringes over the realization of what he has done let's look first of all at the pain of Abiathar verse 20 begins now one of the sons of Ahimelech the son of Ahitub named Abiathar now anybody who's reading through this book from cover to cover uh knows immediately oh Abiathar! yeah he was from that really really bad family uh god spent two entire chapters chapters two and three excoriating the family of uh, of eli and i'm going to read you a little bit from two prophecies there i'm not going to read the whole prophecies but uh this gives the family history that was catching up with him and i'm going to begin reading at chapter 2 verse 31 Behold, the days are coming, he's talking to Eli, that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. And you will see an enemy in my dwelling place, despite all the good which God does for Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age." Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phinehas and one day they shall die, both of them. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest and we find out later that that is the, the line of Zadok, a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. Now here comes a note of mercy in the midst of that judgment. And it shall come to pass that everyone who was left in your house. So that's a little hint there. That it's not a total annihilation. There's going to be a remnant that's left. Everyone who was left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. So Zadok replaces Uh, uh, Eli as uh, the family that would represent the high priestly office that was a separate from all of the other priestly offices so here there are going to be survivors that's a mercy and he's going to continue to allow them to minister in some capacity that's a further mercy even though they will not have the high priestly officer completely shut out of that position so um, I'm gonna pick up at chapter 3 and read from another uh, prophecy to show how abominable this house was to god chapter 3 verse 11 then the lord said to samuel behold i will do something in israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle in that day i will perform against eli all that i have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end for i have told him that i will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Ouch. I mean, that's an incredibly severe pronouncement against that office. No longer could there be any sacrifice that would make him fit for that office. God was not going to hear any prayer for that office. He was excluded from that office. That curse hung over the entire family. God had rejected him and his family from being priests just as much as he had rejected Saul and his family from uh, being a continuing dynasty uh, before him. By the way, just the mention of Saul is a hint of how God deals with people because Jonathan's son, I mean... uh, uh, Jonathan, um, Saul's son, was loved by God. And uh, he was able to break out of that curse that God had pronounced upon the house of Saul and was able to serve him and be a man of faith and do incredible things for God. And so it wasn't as if uh, a person could not break out from that curse. Uh, Jonathan was a, a man who clung to God's mercy even when the shame of his house had caught up with him. But back to Abiathar, Here's this curse hanging over his family. It had a reputation of immorality, corruption, theft, pride, and rebellion that they could not live down. It would be sort of like you being born into a mafia family. And people say, oh, you're from that family. Or you being one of the sons of Judas Iscariot uh, who had denied the Lord. I mean, this was the kind of feeling that you don't want to be connected with that family because that family was kind of under Uh, God's judgment, and this judgment um, uh, wiped out all of the descendants of Eli in this uh, chapter except for one, just one lone survivor. How do you live with a reputation like that? Do you just keep on cringing? Abiathar did not. He knew his family deserved God's judgment, but instead of railing against God, what he did is he justified God. And he clung to God's mercy. He pursued after God. If there was one thing that God cannot say no to, and it's not because I say so, it's because God himself has said so, one thing God cannot say no to, it's a person who pleads his mercy humbly and humbly seeks after God. It doesn't matter how far you have slid down into the gutter. If you plead for God's mercy, you humbly seek after him with all your heart uh you will taste of his mercies habiathar went on to live a life of faith in god and it's almost as if he stepped out of his family's identity now some of you have had to do that you you've started afresh you with your family you're going to build a dynasty built on the rock of jesus christ And uh, it's like you've stepped out of that old identity. Now, unfortunately, toward the end of his life, Abiathar reverted to a temporary rebellion. Sometimes old habits die hard. And I want to read you uh, what 1 Kings 2 and verses 26 through 27 says. And to Abiathar the priest, the king said, and this is King Solomon, go to Anathos to your own fields for you are deserving of death but I will not put you to death at this time because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David, and because you were afflicted every time my father was afflicted. So Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord that he might fulfill the word of the Lord which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. So by removing Abiathar from office, he was fulfilling that prophecy Uh, of uh, the line of Eli eventually being totally uh, shut out of the office of high priest. So what do you do when your family history catches up with you? You continue to plead God's mercy. Even after that final act of blowing it, Abiathar repents. He's a man after God's own heart. He repents, he pleads God's mercies, and he tastes the sweetness of God's mercies, which the scriptures say are what? New every morning, right? In fact, Abiathar illustrates the difference between the removal of sin and having fellowship with God, that's on the one side, and the removal of the consequences of sin. Some people confuse those. They are quite different things. God forgave Abiathar's sins, all of them, but there were still consequences related to office. Just to use an analogy, just because a homosexual repents and... uh, trusts in God and has restored the fellowship with God fellowship with the church does not mean he's instantly going to be cured of his AIDS right Uh, if he has AIDS Uh, God may he may not but the consequences of sin those are like the harvest that you receive from the seeds that you have planted so you got to distinguish between forgiveness and the other so let's apply that to Abiathar's office Uh, I remember a guy who came to my office for uh, counseling back in the old Trinity PCA days. Uh, He was a former pastor, and uh, he had divorced his first wife and um, entered into an unbiblical second marriage. Then he subsequently divorced that second wife and entered into a third unbiblical marriage, and he came to me. And he said, you know, I've repented of this. I've recognized that this is wrong. This disqualifies me from office. But I want to know uh, what I should uh, do about this because I I really do feel that God has forgiven me. And I agreed with him. I said, yeah, God has forgiven you and his mercies uh, cover over your sins and uh, you should try to make that third marriage work uh, to God's glory. But then he said to me, well, since God has forgiven me, and since i'm gifted to be a pastor and i'm called to be a pastor doesn't that mean i can go back into being a pastor and i said no the Bible's quite clear that you are disqualified forever from the office of elder and he said but what about romans 11 verse 29 it says the gifts and calling of god are irrevocable god won't ever call uh, take those back and i said yeah the gifts and the calling of god are irrevocable and there is no reason why you cannot continue to use your gifts in the church and continue to minister. You don't have to have the office of a pastor to teach and to serve and, and in many different ways and to bless God's people. But the office itself is forever closed, just like the office was closed uh, to Abiathar uh, in uh, this particular passage. And uh, so what the situation with him was, was instead of getting bitter over the fact that the office was closed to him, he began to serve selflessly in the church with all of his heart, with all of his gifts. He clung to God's mercies, enjoyed God's mercies, and became a blessing to that church and was blessed himself uh, in the process. And so the point is don't live in regrets. You move on, you make the most of your life, and you relish the mercy that God pours out on you. Now a second pain that Abiathar experienced was losing everything and having his life turned upside down. Verse 20 goes on to say that Abiathar escaped and fled after David. Now think about that. David was the one who in part precipitated all of his relatives being killed because Uh, He had involved Abiathar's father in uh, his fleeing and so it would have been very easy for Abiathar to become bitter against David But he was not It would have been very easy for him to become bitter against God, but he was not It would have been very easy for him to, to, to just get so upset with his family that had brought all of this stuff upon him but he was not bitter against his family either This little phrase of fleeing after David is a symbol of identifying with a uh, God-centered faith. When your life has been turned upside down, it's very easy to start getting bitter and to start mourning and mourning and mourning over the losses that you had, sort of like Jacob did uh, when he lost uh, Joseph. I have known people who have become bitter and angry for years, angry against God even. They've admitted I'm angry against God. Uh, for years because they've maybe lost one of their children to death, or they've lost a house, or they have uh, lost uh, some financial um, you know, investments that are out there, and they've been upset, and they've not been able to get over that. Uh, Abiathar refused to do that. Unlike his family, his identity was wrapped up in God, and because God was his treasure... He was able to say, even through the tears, because I'm not denying the pain, there's pain in there. But even through the tears, he was able to say, like Job, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, you cannot say that if your children are your treasure, or your house is your treasure, other things are your treasure. You cannot say that if you've constantly got this video of regrets playing over and over uh, in your mind, if only I hadn't uh, done uh, such and such a thing. God was sovereign over even those mistakes, and it's very important that you learn to move past them. There was a pastor uh, who had spent, I don't know how many weeks it was, just living in regrets over something that he had done, and actually fear of the future, of what other people would think about him, and he said how God ministered to him through the name I Am. And it was if God was opening up that name and making him realize, look, my name is I am not I was and you are losing the benefits of sweet fellowship with me and ministry from me and learning to receive of my power because you're being controlled by the past. The past cannot control you unless you allow it to control you. What does faith do? It's not looking to the past, it's constantly looking to God in the present as the great I am. You cannot allow the future to control you unless you give in to fear. Fear is the great killer of faith. And so fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of your faith. Don't fix your eyes on those who condemn you. Don't fix your eyes on all of those sins that you committed that you so regret. You cast them at the feet of Jesus, you move on. Verse 21 it says, that Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. So even the present can bring pain. You can be tied up in the past, you can be tied up in fear in the future, but the present itself can be extremely painful. His entire family, his entire town had been wiped out. Uh, He no doubt felt crushed with the cruelty of life. I mean, who would have thought that the king of Israel would kill 85 pastors, all of their wives and their children, their dogs, their cattle, every living thing. It was like a scorched earth. And it would have been very easy for him to have become uh, very given in to despair, but he did not. While it caused him to hate hu- humanism, and rightfully so, it did not make him hate God. Uh, while it caused him to see the ugliness of humanism, he was still able to see the goodness of God's hand in the midst of what those people had done to him and he grew through it instead of becoming bitter through it. And I think later chapters in First Samuel make that quite clear. Now, there's a lot of people point out that the book of Philippians and the book of First Peter say that the fires of persecution purify us and uh, they, they make us uh, better. And it's true, uh, those, things can, those fires can really cause us to grow closer to the Lord, but that does not automatically happen. There are a lot of Christians who do not grow better when they are persecuted, they grow bitter. It's not an automatic thing. So what is it that makes the difference between a person who just thrives, who grows closer and closer to the Lord despite the incredibly bad things that happen to him, and another person who just falls apart and becomes very very bitter and perhaps an an illustration would help a diamond is formed by coal being put under extreme pressure and heat over time and people were have been trying for a long long time to make artificial diamonds so that they could use them in various industrial applications and on saw blades and things like that And they knew theoretically that putting pressure and heat on coal would turn it into a diamond. And they tried and they tried and they tried and they could not do it. It was not until 1954 that they finally discovered that you needed to put a catalyst with it. And the first catalyst they used was a molten iron. And later they used molten uh, nickel and uh, cobalt. But they called this a solvent catalyst. And immediately they were able to very cheaply and easily make Uh, artificial diamonds now they've come up with four different ways that they can make artificial diamonds but it was that catalyst that made all the difference it was not the heat it was not the pressure alone that did that and the same is true in our lives you can go through pressure and if you don't have the catalyst of being close to the Lord by faith being driven by faith it's not going to turn into diamonds it's faith in Christ and his presence in you that's that catalyst that can turn the coal into diamonds and instead what we do is we do all kinds of things to kill our faith it's like we're trying systematically to kill the faith within us what are some of the things that kill faith grumbling complaining repeating Murphy's laws like a mantra you know what Murphy's laws are there there's hundreds of them if you drop toast it's always gonna fall down butter side right butter butterside down uh they, they got any number of things murphy's laws you know if it rains it pours it's, it's like everything that could go wrong has gone wrong in the past is going wrong now will go wrong in the future it kills your faith self-pity will kill your faith and as a result you are not going to get diamonds out of your pressures and out of the fires that you are going through way to tell if you are living by faith in the midst of your trials is the degree of joy that you have first Peter says that the people there were going through fiery persecutions and yet he said that they were experiencing joy indescribable and full of glory okay that's one test that you can do that Paul said the same in Philippians 4 he said rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice now faith is what enables us to see the big picture And when you see the big picture, the the, the, the impact of this fire and these pressures is not as great. It helps you to rejoice. Next verse goes on to say, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Seeing God close to you and having a sense of his presence with you in the midst of that fire enables you not to lash out at people. If you're one of those who every time pressures come, you're lashing out at everybody else. You're missing out on the catalyst that can produce uh, uh, diamonds out of the coal and out of the pressures that you're going through. He goes on to say, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He's saying, this is a peace you cannot even describe. It it passes understanding. It, it, It just, it can't be described in human terms. It's supernatural. It invades and it guards our hearts. And when you have those kinds of prayers, that kind of faith, that kind of vision of the Lord, it helps. So if you've experienced the pain of Abiathar, don't let the pain rob you of your blessings. See God's mercies in the midst of judgment rather than focusing on the judgment and not seeing the mercies. Live by faith. See the goodness of God's hand in everything that you do. Now, let's take a look at the pain of David because it was a a little bit different. Verse 22 So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. He knew it and he made a gamble that it wouldn't make any difference, but his gamble failed and his gamble cost the lives of many people. And as Abiathar comes, he's thinking, oh man, I knew that Doeg was there. Why did I go ahead and say that? It it was a bad gamble that he had made and he is groaning over it. Now, David could have gone to two extremes when this news came to him. One extreme would be to save his pride uh, by trying to have people not see his involvement in this. Put all of the blame on King Saul. Oh yeah, what a dastardly king that was. Uh, And start going on the attack over there. That helps to deflect any criticism from his pride. The other extreme would be to realize that everybody knows that I am a jerk. I've caused these deaths, <clears throat> and so it would be to cringe over it, to mourn, to weep over it, and to be nursing that pride, but not crucifying it. Either way is being driven by the fear of man, and it is, uh, it is uh, a desire to please men. Now, you'll notice David does not do either one. He does not start justifying himself and explaining all of the reasons why Saul is 100% to blame on this. And no, he owns up to his part of the blame. It's a sign of a good leader. The buck stops with me. But he could also just as easily have made the fear of man, make him cringe and groan and fear. Boy, what are people going to think of me? Are they, they're not going to trust me anymore in these kinds of situations. I better cover for myself. David owns up. To his part of the fiasco. And this is an absolutely amazing admission. Take a look at the second half of verse 22. David says, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Now, wouldn't you have been tempted to at least have Saul share some of the blame? <laughs> to kind of deflect things a little bit from yourself. I mean, obviously, Saul had engaged in murder and had overstepped his jurisdiction. He was out of control. He was an unworthy king. Maybe if you put me into kingship, you know, we can solve some of these kinds of problems. But that is our first tendency. It's to go on the attack because we don't want our pride uh, to be humbled. And uh, yet David sees his own fault first and he owns up to his own fault even if King Saul does not do so. Wow. Wow. This is is really incredible when you think about it. And this too is a sign that you're walking by faith rather than by sight. When the Holy Spirit, you've gotten into a fight with your spouse and the Holy Spirit is convicting you that you need to repent of your bad attitudes and how you've been talking about this and go to your spouse and say, you know, I'm sorry, please forgive me on this. Instantly in your mind, there's a little calculator that's whizzing 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 around say okay i think she's 90 percent at fault and i'm quite willing to admit for my 10 percent at fault so long as she admits to her 90 percent at fault isn't that the way it kind of goes we're willing to confess if if the other person takes some of the blame because it's too humbling otherwise here's the amazing thing david doesn't do that he doesn't care what other people are going to think about his confection fashion He just wants to be clear before the Lord, and he wants to be clear before other people. And I would encourage you to try this sometime, even if you're only 5% at fault. And that's usually the way it is, isn't it? We tend to minimize our own. The other one 95%, I'm only 5%. But okay, we won't worry about that right now. If the Spirit's only convicted you of 5%, right? Still, I would urge you to do exactly what David did and go and confess to that person your 5%, without bringing up their sin. Just leave God in the business of convicting them. You've probably already brought up the sin already two or three or four or five times, right? When he convicts you, just confess your own and let him do that. In my teens and my twenties, oh, this was brutal, brutal hard for me to do because when I confessed my 5% of the sin that the spirit convicted me of, it was probably a whole lot more than 5%. Okay, but. I was confessing what I had done wrong, and I said, you know, the Spirit of God has convicted me that my attitude was totally wrong in this, and I should not use that tone of voice. It was a demeaning tone of voice. It showed an ungodly heart attitude. Please, would you forgive me of that? Inevitably, what would happen is the other person's face would brighten, and boy, they'd be so gracious, and yes, I do forgive you for your sin, and I can see exactly what's going on in their hearts. They think I'm admitting to all the fault, and I've not done that. I've, just, I've confessed this little tiny bit, you know, that I'm at fault at. And I'm so tempted to open my voice, and God's Spirit says, Shut up, Phil. Do not open your voice. I'm working on you. Just leave me. Okay, Lord, when are you going to convict this guy of his sin? And the Holy Spirit just said, leave it alone, Phil. That's not your business. That's my business to work on his heart. It was just brutal hard. But as I began to do that, lo and behold, what I began finding is I found, first of all, the joy of having a clear conscience before others. And I did not want any division between me and that person to be my own fault. So my conscience is free before him. My conscience is free before God the Father. And I begin to experience the joy as I'm crucifying my pride, putting on humility of experiencing God's presence, his power, a new authority that I did not have before. Why? Because God is walking with me. And lo and behold, I'm beginning to have the inkling smallest bits of First Peter's joy, indescribable and full of glory. When there's really no reason for it, everybody looks on and thinks... There's no reason to be joyful. <laughs> you know, the other guy's won. No, he hasn't won. He did not ab- was not able to conquer my heart. And so I would really, really urge you to do this. It's crucifying your pride, putting on humility, entering into the joy of the Lord. Now, let me end with four more things you can do to help you move beyond the pain and beyond the shame permanently. First, David said, stay with me be willing to connect with other imperfect saints david was willing to model the admission that he was imperfect and what happened is he began to attract other imperfect saints who gathered around him you look at the crew that gathered around uh, him; they were imperfect saints weren't they now if david had done the opposite If he was more ready to see the imperfections of others than he would of his own imperfections who would he be attracting he'd be attracting people who seem like their lives are all put together but who are quite ready to criticize everybody else we call this hypocrisy right and hypocrites are blind to their own failings but constantly seeing the failings of others May this congregation be a congregation that knows how to comfort people in pain and who have gone through shame. Why? Because we know about our own pain and we know about our own shame as well. May it be a congregation that welcomes imperfect saints who are honest about their mistakes, who want to go on to victory, who want to grow. It'll happen. It'll happen if we all embrace the attitudes of David and Abiathar. The second step that's very very helpful is given in david's next words do not fear when you blow it it's very easy to just fear ever trying again or fear associating uh, with people again we got to resist that temptation i want to tell you a, a famous story that's been circulating for quite a number of years about roy regals this was back in 1929 at the rose bowl and uh, Georgia Tech, uh, Yellow Jackets, were uh, fighting against the Golden Bears of uh, Cal- uh, University of California. Well, anyway, Roy Regal scooped up a fumbled ball from Georgia Tech. And anyway, he got turned around, confused, and he started running the wrong way, ran 65 yards toward the wrong uh, side of the field. And um, let's see, what was the other guy's uh, name? Um, Benny Lom. Uh, was running after him, yelling at him to stop, and he was a faster runner and finally was able uh, to try to tackle him at the uh, three-yard line. He couldn't tackle him, but finally the Yellow Jackets descended on all of them, and he got tackled at the one-yard line. So this was just an incredibly embarrassing experience. They tried to punt the ball away, and the punt got uh, blocked, uh, resulting in a safety, and so it left them... Georgia, you know, it was 2-1, 2-0. Uh, and so it was just enough margin for them to win uh, that game. Well, everybody was just stunned by this turn of events. Actually, it was probably more than stunned. They were probably ticked off. They were mad at Roy, uh, Roy Regals, except for all of the fans of Georgia Tech. Well, uh, the announcers were wondering, okay, what's, what are they going to do with Roy Regals? What's uh, the coach going to say? Coach Price, during halftime, looked at the team and said simply, men... The same team that played the first half will start the second. And the players got up and they started walking out, except for Roy Regals. He just sat in the chair with his head in his hands. And the coach looked back and called out to him. He wouldn't move. Coach Price went over to Regals and said, Roy, didn't you hear me? And Roy looked up and he's just bawling. (laughs) And he said, Coach, I couldn't face that crowd in the stadium to save my life. And Coach Price reached out his hand on R- Regal's shoulder and he said, Roy, get up and go on back. The game is only half over. And Roy Regals went out and he played his heart out. He probably played harder than he'd ever played in his life. And he proved himself. You know, he was all star before. He he proved himself to be an incredible athlete now they still lost the game it was a heartbreaker but he showed himself to be the kind of football player he needed to be in that second half And the Bible says this is what needs to be done with every one of us there is no going back and reliving it and redoing it and too many people are living in the past too many of you are living in the past you're constantly replaying the video of regrets And you're cringing and you think, man, I can't face that crowd again, even if it were to save my life. But you need to be like David. David put away his grief. He got back into the game. Now think about the Apostle Paul. (laughs) If the Apostle Paul had constantly replayed the video of regrets of all of the people he had imprisoned, all of the Christians he had put to death, It would have paralyzed him every time he'd go to a new church and and meet a christian he'd be thinking oh boy i bet you one of his relatives was put to death or maybe they were put. maybe he was one of the ones i put into prison that wasn't put to death and there would have been this twisting fear inside of his chest of what other people would think about him he refused to be paralyzed by his past here's what he said one thing i do forgetting those things which are behind and by the way that's not a bad memory Uh, He's never going to have a bad memory about that. But he's saying, I refuse to bring those things back to remembrance. I refuse to constantly be playing and playing and playing that video of regrets of all of the Christians that I have killed in the past. He says, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's where his focus is, what does God think of me, not what do other people think of me. That is a trap. What does God think of me? And he goes on to say, therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. He is saying, don't let the past tie you down. Make something of your life by moving forward. And by the way, the same attitude that Paul says he wants you to have for yourself, he wants you to have for other people. He says, don't be constantly replaying the video of other people's errors and of other people's sins, okay? We need to have the same attitude toward others. And so don't hold the sins of your spouse against your, uh, your spouse. You know, Every time that they goof up, okay, you bring all of the past sins out of the garbage can and you smear those sins into their faces, No, that is not uh, appropriate. They forgave Paul of all of the sins that Paul had done against the church just as God in Christ had forgiven them. That's the way he calls us. You have to forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave you. And if you are not willing to forgive your spouse, you're constantly reliving and replaying those sins that they have committed against you. And you're just getting bitter about them. Jesus says he will not forgive you your sins. And you don't believe me. Read Matthew 6 verses 14 through 15 for yourself sometime. He guarantees, I will not forgive you your sins. If you are not willing to forgive one another their sins God wants you to move forward if you keep playing the videos of your own sins God will bench you you keep replaying the videos of other people's sins God will bench you it's gonna keep you out of the game and so point a is reconnect with the team. Reconnect with imperfect saints. Be a Coach Price who welcomes imperfect saints onto the team and be a Roy Regal who's willing to go back onto the team and associate with others. That's point A. Point B, reject fear and live by faith. Fear of what others think of you is utterly incompatible with faith. War against it. Fight against it. Do not give in to it. God says you cannot be men-pleasers. By the way, that was my besetting sin, and it's still something I have to always watch out for is being a man-pleaser, living in the fear of what other people might think of me. And so Galatians 1.10 is a verse I have memorized years and years ago and uh, drilled deep into my consciousness. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ is what Paul says. We've got to crucify that and put that away. Point C realize that you are not alone in the fight In verse 23 david said for he who seeks my life seeks your life okay we're both in this together if you think you are the only one who has gone through these pains and these shames you're going to feel isolated now if you're on the other side of the fence and you think they're the only ones who have gone through these pains and these shames you're going to feel isolated See, the Bible calls us to realize we are all wounded sinners who need each other. All of us are under the attack of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And if you are too good for us, or we are too good for you, you've missed the whole point. Even the Apostle Paul, toward the end of his life, realized his own sins to such a degree, he said, that he was the chief of sinners. And people are saying what that didn't make any sense i've never seen a person more holy than the apostle paul i've never seen a person more close to god yet he is convinced i'm the chief of sinners why because the closer you get to the intense light of god's glory the more the little corners and the dust balls and the spider webs appear in your life and you become more aware of your own sins than you do of the sins of other people And so we need to realize we are in this fight together. Really, here's one way of thinking of it. This church, the whole team is filled with Roy Regals. Okay, every one of us, every one of you, you might think you're the only one with regrets is just disqualifying you, forget it. I am Roy Regal who has things from my past that I have been tempted to cringe over. Everybody else in this congregation is the same. And we need to get used to thinking that way. The last step that we see in David's speech here is that we need to believe God's word implicitly. Verse 23 ends by saying, but with me, you shall be safe. Actually, just throw in there an extra point. Um, Throw in an extra point there that we want this church to be a church where we can say to every Roy Regal, you're safe here. Okay, you're safe here. Okay. we welcome you onto the team and if you will play your heart out for us we will play our hearts out for you now of course if the roy regal comes into the church and he says you know i like running the ball the wrong direction and i will run the ball the wrong direction we're going to knock you down (laughs) we're going to bench you for a while okay because that's not what a christian should do but roy regals don't do that they're ashamed of their sins, and they cry over their sins, and maybe they're gonna, you're going to do it again. But you are safe here because this is a team that is committed to playing with you if you're willing to play your heart out for the Lord Jesus Christ. But now the new point E on your outlines is believe God's word implicitly. The reason we can say you're safe here is not because we think we're so good. No, it's because we trust God's word implicitly. And the reason I say they were trusting God's word implicitly and saying you're safe with us is because they had brought God's revelation with them. Abiathar brought the ephod, which had the Urim and the Thummim, People don't know exactly what it was two stones perhaps that glowed and it gave a yes or a no answer infallible guidance from the Lord David was an infallible prophet from the Lord and he was writing down his scriptures Plus Abiathar bought all of the books of Moses and whatever Samuel's already written and said so they know infallibly it's prophesied that David is going to be a king That's how they know you're gonna be safe with us even though all the evidence seemed to be to the contrary, they could say, you're going to be safe with us. We can believe God's word no matter what it says because he is a God who cannot lie. Amen? Amen. Now, in conclusion, let me say that although none of us have very much to offer to the Lord, since our lives are so feeble, uh, we're worse, really, in in many ways than uh, Roy Regal's because he was quite the athlete, we can still offer God our all. And that's a pretty cool thing to offer you know a little toddler uh, when they're drawing or they're doing some work for you they're not doing it very well but you are so pleased with them when they give you their all Uh, nathan hale is famous in american history books and even though he was admired by his friends for his dedication he really was not super famous until after his death in 1775 Hale accepted a commission as first lieutenant in uh, the Connecticut Regiment, later served under Washington as a commander of a ranger uh, company whose mission was forward reconnaissance. And in September of 1776, he was captured as a spy by the uh, the, the British. Uh, he was tried and sentenced to death. He gave a very spirited and uh, apparently quite a, a good speech uh, to those who were there and then he was hung now hanging was a most shameful 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 way to die back in those days especially if you were a higher class which Hale really was but at his hanging he said these words that are in our textbooks I regret that I have but one life to give for my country he didn't regret being hung he wished he could be hung again that he, he regret that was the only regret he had that he had but one life to give for his country and that statement so inspired other americans sirsian said this an insignificant school teacher who never wrote anything important never owned any property never had a permanent job never married nor had any children, never fought in a battle, and who failed in his final mission, made history in the last few seconds of his life. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if you only have a few seconds yet to live or if you've got 80 years yet to live. If you will be a Roy Regals in the second half of that game, getting back into the game, giving it your all, you will have God's well done thou good and faithful servant the only regret that you should have is a regret i regret that i have only one life to give for my masterful wonderful gracious merciful savior that should be the only regret forget about all of the great or other regrets let them get behind you and vow to stop playing that tape recorder or that video player in your mind destroy it get a sledgehammer out and say lord i don't want to think about this anymore I want to fix my eyes on Jesus, my wonderful, sweet Savior, who is the author and finisher of my faith. And I want to get back into that game and I want to play my heart out for Him. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank You for Your Word and the encouragement that it can be to us. And I pray that each one here would be comforted by the grace that flows from Your throne. We love You and it is our glory to give You our sadness, to give You our failures to give you any mistakes and sins and discouragements of the past and to put them under the blood of jesus who has erased them for us and to get back into the game father may we be a congregation not only of roy regals but a congregation of coach prices who welcome other roy regals into this congregation and to you be the honor and the glory in jesus name amen